And now, here is a man who will show you how to feel better, look better, Jack LaLanne. Good morning. Happy Monday morning to you. Thanks very, very much for letting me come into your home. You know, my name is Jack LaLanne. And I'm here for one reason and one reason only. To show you how to feel better and look better so you can live longer. Please, keep your dial right where it is. Because I want to become real good friends with you. You know, there has been so much talk of late about the importance of exercise, the importance of better nutrition, the importance of positive thinking. All of these things we are going to learn together. I like to consider myself as your personal physical instructor and your health consultant coming into your home every day. You know, and there's also many of you students who say, Jack, I know, I know, I know that I need exercise, but, well, it's too boring, it isn't any fun, and I can't do it, or I'm too old. These are all excuses, because I'm going to be here to show you how much fun and how easy exercise, well, I don't like to call it exercise, I like to call it gymnastics, how much fun it really can be. And I want to show you that you can do it. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you how you can firm up your bust line, how you can take down your waist and firm up your hips, how you can get rid of those ugly pounds, all of these things from me. That was Francois-Henri Lalaine debuting his televised fitness show on September 28, 1953. The third son of French immigrants, Lalaine, whose family nicknamed him Jack, followed in the tradition of 19th century American health experts such as Sylvester Graham, inventor of the Graham Cracker, and sanitarium entrepreneur John Harvey Kellogg, who created the modern breakfast cereal. Like Graham and Kellogg, in the 1920s, Lalaine was born again through a dedication to what we would call wellness today. A chubby, unhappy teenager, he became a self-invented, strapping icon of manhood by devoting himself to exercise, bodybuilding, and natural foods. Also, like Graham and Kellogg, as an adult, Lillane became an entrepreneur, converting his personal wellness practice into a chain of health clubs based on a set of exercise machines he designed himself. But he also propounded an ideology of life, emphasizing a holistic lifestyle that exhorted clients to take charge of their own health. But perhaps Lillane's greatest claim to fame, other than defeating a 21-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger in a bodybuilding contest at the age of 54, was to harness technology to spread the gospel of fitness. Beginning on a local San Francisco channel, Lillane's trim form was accented by an outfit that was a cross between leisure wear and dance clothes as he led a home audience through a simple series of exercises. As importantly, the afternoon show was aimed at women, a national audience of presumably white housewives longing to trim their waists and firm their thighs for half an hour a day. Lillane was a turning point in American culture. Today we can work out in gyms outfitted with machines that grew out of his simple designs and order meals online that encourage us to keep to a healthy diet. We attend classes with trained coaches or stay home to do yoga, run, dance, cycle, stretch, or row, guided by similar experts beamed into our homes through computerized screens. We purchase expensive equipment, rent or buy in condo buildings with fully outfitted gyms, or gather in CrossFit boxes to work out in a way that claims to simulate 19th century manual labor. How did we get here? And who are we? How do race and class serve as barriers to wellness? And when did being visibly healthy become a sign of civic virtue? Why and how have Americans invested so much time and money in creating a fit nation? 
and at the same time increasingly made the resources that could actually lead to national health for all a question of personal responsibility. My new school colleague, historian Natalia Melman Petrozella, tracks the history of Americans' investment in their own bodies in her new book about the history of United States exercise culture, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Taking her readers from late 19th century performances of bodybuilding through today's glittering gyms, elite studio classes, celebrity instructors, and extreme sports, Petrozella, a professor, journalist, and podcaster who has a not-so-secret life as a fitness instructor, explores an American obsession with fitness and health that seems to be within our grasp but is, in reality, out of reach for so many. Join Natalia and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meets the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode eight, You Can Never Be Too Rich or Too Thin. Welcome to Why Now. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm thrilled. And I just want to begin by saying I think your new book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, is not only a fabulous book, but it is the perfect holiday present for the person in your life who is working out in one way or another. We're going to talk about those ways right now. Yay, I'm so glad to hear that. There is a little shipping delay to early January, but you know, you can tease under the tree what's coming. Uh, what's coming That's out right. So Natalia, Fit Nation is about the role of exercise and wellness in United States culture, but this book actually begins in Europe at the end of the 19th century. And fitness wasn't really participatory at the beginning. It was a performance or a spectacle. So Can you tell our listeners about the first American obsession with fitness? Absolutely. So yeah, it was funny for me to uh, start not in the United States, which is not only my home, but my intellectual home as well. And one of the things that was so interesting is that if you really want to go back to the origins of American fitness culture, it doesn't start in a gym like we know it. It starts in circuses. And in my book at the World's Fair, where these strong men and women like Eugene Sandow, who I start with, are literally on stage, like flexing and posing and wearing all of this kind of classical attire and different costumes. And it is a performance of strength. And it's so weird to be somebody who deliberately exercises, lift weights and shows it off that those guys are on stage with like, the bearded lady and the Siamese twins and, you know, in some more elevated environments, but it really is a performance, not something for participation. Yeah. And so maybe the fact that these original fitness freaks were spectacles has something to do with the fact that even when fitness took hold as an activity, Americans were sometimes ambivalent, suspicious, hostile. Who felt the need to become fit in the early 20th century and why? Not 
very many people at all. I mean, truly, these early enthusiasts like Sandow, Bernard McFadden, who maybe some listeners have heard of, who were enthusiasts about strength and health and training and nutrition, they were preaching to their own very small choir. Most people did not feel like to be healthy involved deliberate exercise. So who were those people? I mean, they were like pretty marginal characters, quite honestly. They were people who were, you know, some would describe them or decry them as health nuts. They were kind of like seekers. They were people who were like experimenting with different kinds of like um, miracle cures and body work. Like these were not folks who were kind of in the mainstream of American life because the kind of dominant idea about exercise was that it was a form of physical labor. That's what the lower classes do. And that's like really distasteful. And also that if you do it too rigorously, it can be actually harmful to your health, particularly for women. So just like a little anecdote from that, which I thought was like really interesting because these are all ideas I kind of had before going into this, but then it's so nice when the sources like really bear out your hypothesis. And, you know, people like Sandow spent a lot of energy saying like, I am no mere breaker of stones. And they would have these like elaborate parables to show like, I'm not like some lout who can just lift heavy stuff. My training is about deliberate strength. And this is part of civilization, not evidence of barbarism. And I realized how closely physical training was tied in that moment to a kind of uplift project and like strengthening white people, quite honestly, but white people in a way that was different and really, really distinct from the kind of brute force associated with lower classes and other races. Right. And of course, a a great example of that is Teddy Roosevelt, who Mm -hmm. one of the first things he does as president is actually save football because they want to get rid of football um, because people are being killed. Um, and Roosevelt says, no, 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 we actually need young men to, to do this kind of thing. And he, you know, he's really promoting fitness as something that's going to save the nation. And that's really a key theme of your book, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, he's promoting fitness among relatively elite college going um, boys and men. Seems contradictory, but it's not when you think about it. But they're almost like these dual narratives of like, we need like to strengthen boys and men and we need them to be more savage. But they're really only talking about white men because there's this fear, this, you know, crisis of masculinity, like Gail Biederman and others have, have said that, you know, as there is kind of more of a service economy, as there's more education that's compulsory, that all of these middle class boys and men are in the process of engaging in these like civilizing institutions, becoming quote unquote mollycoddled, my favorite one, effeminate. And this is even more threatening because at the same time, you've got all of this immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. You have very recently the emancipation of enslaved people. So there's all this like panic about like how to strengthen white boys in the right way and girls too, although the discourse is a little different. Yeah. Well, and the girls, of course, who are going to places like Smith and Wellesley and Bryn Mawr are in the gym swinging Indian clubs around because you need strong mothers too, to save the race. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was something really funny, um, too, uh, that like there were there's this uh, discourse that McFadden kind of engages in and it sounds on its face like really great. Like, oh, no corsets. These corsets are crushing girls and they should be lifting weights. And I'm like, yeah, you go, McFadden, like sister in arms. He'd totally be in like the women's gym with me. And then 
he believes this because white women's reproductive organs are being compromised. And so it's like the opposite of a kind of inclusive feminist take. It's like we need these like breeding bodies to be stronger so that we can have more white babies. So it's a good lesson to like read to the next paragraph before you're too celebratory of someone in the past or ever, honestly. I couldn't agree with you more. So I, I want to sort of cut to some of these big words that you're using in this book, because you make it pretty clear that competitive athletics, fitness, and wellness aren't the same thing, but they all interact with each other and cross-fertilize as, as ideas. So first of all, can you define what you mean by athletics, fitness, and wellness, and then talk about how over time they feed on each other to create something else in American culture. Sure, feed on each other and sometimes contradict one another or act at odds with one another. So first, I think, you know, formal athletics is what we think of as everything from the NBA team that you pay money to go see to the competitive little league team that exists in your kids, um, in your kids town. Um, so really organized sports is what I would say that is. Then you have kind of fitness programs, which are usually not always as competitive. There's usually not tryouts. They involve kids and adults very often. They are often, they are pretty much always defined as being inclusive and often for the purpose of like health promotion more than like to win a game. Then the third piece there, which you said wellness. So the language of wellness doesn't come into usage really into like the 1970s or beyond. And I would say the concept isn't even really fully in circulation until like the 1960s or a little or a little later even. Um, and there you have this notion that I define wellness as this idea that mind and body are interconnected. You cannot be a kind of fully healthy being without working on your body as well as your kind of um, your mind and your heart and your soul. And wellness is more than the absence of illness, right? It's about not just not being sick, but achieving a kind of higher level of health. And also, and this is key, that it is very, um, it is crucial for individuals to kind of take initiative over their own health, not to wait until they're sick, not to appeal to someone in a white coat or to a pill in a bottle to uh, fix their problems, but to kind of take responsibility for your own health. So, all those are, you're right, those are three kind of ideas or institutions that kind of permeate throughout the book. And one, I'll start with the first two, um, one which I think are really interesting, which is that a lot of fitness boosters in America, although you would think that they'd be kind of sports boosters as well, they're constantly contrasting their goals to the goals of like coaches and kind of people who are invested in um, more competitive sports programs. So much so that in, and why are they doing this? They're saying, well, we're supporting something that's recreational and that's inclusive and that's for everyone. And sports by definition are exclusive and like we can't get behind that. And this is so much the case that like in the 19th, 1950s and early 60s, which is often considered the kind of golden age of like federal physical education policy, you have these fitness boosters who are going around and saying, you know, one of the red flags of a town that's going to have fitness related problems is one with um, a lot of competitive sports teams. Because 
one, they're going to put all their resources to that as opposed to building playgrounds or a community pool. Two, people will suffer from the affliction of spectator-itis. <laughs> when spectator-itis is where people want to just go and watch elite performances of athletics and don't feel like they can participate. And so they really feel that there's that tension between the two. Now, to make it even more interesting, what ends up happening is that in order to kind of sell the idea that there should be these inclusive recreational and, and programs and PE programs, pretty much everybody who's in charge of the Presidential Council on, on Youth Fitness has to enlist the support of major sports heroes to be like, hey, this is really important too. So you have like early on, Kennedy brings on Bud Wilkinson, who's a very famous college football coach, to be like, yes, everybody should be like going out for walks and doing push-ups. And it's really funny because there actually is this tension between the two. I should say also that there's another interesting connection there around women, which is that champions of like recreational fitness um, often see it as a kind of backdoor to create something that's not as threatening for girls and women to participate in. Because quite often, like these pretty radical physical education boosters for women, many of them Black women, by the way, are saying like, no, girls should play basketball and girls should play all these sports. And they're met with a variety of um, forms of resistance, some of them being like, no, you know, it's too dangerous or we don't have facilities. But other things that they say are this will cultivate unladylike sensibilities of competitiveness, of violence, of individualism. There's also some latent warnings about lesbianism that could happen in these all women's sports environments. And so what a lot of them do in being like these champions of recreation and fitness is like, oh, no, 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 we're just talking about group dance. Like this builds grace and like a community spirit. And so that's an interesting connection too. Then I know this is a long answer to your question, but to the last point about wellness, for most of American history, like well until like I would say the 1970s, definitely people who are engaged in like exercise communities and activities feel that it's about more than the body. Like it, my research is filled with stories of people who are talking about finding community and health and joy and confidence and all the rest. But it's really not until like at least the 70s, but I would say it really ramps up in the 90s and beyond, that you have people talking about working out as something more than this narrowly physical pursuit. And they're saying, oh, instead, this is about mental health. This is about holistic wellness, et cetera. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, juxtaposition, but also interplay and even tension among those things. Well, and it's interesting you you mentioned those sort of oblique hints of lesbianism um, in athletics, because as we know, actually, athletics are a hotbed of lesbianism. But mm -hmm. one of the things I thought about when I was reading your book is today's transphobia in women's and girls sports and really how that's kind of a continuation of decades of propaganda that women will become masculine if they do athletics, that they won't be able to bear children, that they'll harm their, their reproductive organs, that they will get muscles that are unattractive. And we even find women saying, I don't want to do this because my calves will get too big or my shoulders will get too big. A hundred percent. I think there's definitely that through line with like modern transphobia and kind of fears about the disfiguration of women's bodies and like even kind of a less concrete, but like, you know, kind of like corruption of femininity um, that will happen. So I think that there's absolutely that through line there. It is hard to trace though, because the public discourse around the stuff, even though of course there's always been trans people, 
is not, it's very much operating in a gender binary. So I, I, I don't know how much light this book will shed on that, except to provide a very different historical context. To this other point that you make about like women not wanting to get bulky and all the rest, one of the things I find most fascinating, and I hope people pick up on this too in the book, is that the whole women's fitness industry occupies this really fascinating space where they would not exist without Title IX and the kind of activism of all these feminists who were, you know, rejecting all these crazy ideas that sports would turn women into men and that they weren't strong enough and all the rest. Absolutely, that lays the foundation for aerobics and bar workouts and all of that kind of stuff. At the same time, I think a lot of those programs succeed because they actually play to women's fears that sports, weightlifting, these more traditionally masculine activities will make them bulky, but this thing won't, right? And so you see fitness um, environments very much marketing themselves that way of, oh, this won't bulk you up, long, lean muscles, gracefulness, etc. Yet at the same time, these are the kind of rigorous workouts, which never would have been possible before, you know, but for the labors of these feminist women. And I think it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, I don't even think that's like a nefarious plan necessarily. I think it was just very much the zeitgeist. And there's this wonderful essay that I quote. I wish I could almost like reprint it in full by Gloria Steinem. And I think it's 1982. And she like just writes this characteristically beautiful essay about the experience of being in a women's locker room after a dance exercise class. And she uses the term instant sisterhood that she feels with all these women. And it's like bodies that are naked, but not for the male gaze, et cetera. But one of the people who she talks to is this teenage girl. And she just says offhandedly something like, yeah, I love this class. I mean, I'm not a jock. Like I wouldn't go out for a team. And she, there really is this distinction between participating in these fitness environments and in being a quote unquote jock. And I don't think that we as a historical profession have done much justice to exploring that. Like we have how many, you know, retrospectives on Title IX as we should, we need more of them. This is so important, but we tend to like reiterate that focus on the arena of sports without looking at this broader physical culture environment. Well, yeah. And, you know, if I can ask you to do this for me to tell you, you know, you and I have talked about your trajectory as an athlete. And you were really somebody who rejected sports and then got into fitness through jazzercise. Is that right? Close. Step aerobics a little later, but there would be no step aerobics without jazzercise. Yeah. Tell our listeners about that. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of maybe show my cards a little too much, I still, when you say like, you're an athlete, I'm like, oh no, not me, which like (laughs) so totally shows how much we internalize these ideas. I would say, though, that athletics rejected me more than me rejecting athletics. Like, I just grew up, you know, I'm 44, so I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, and I just grew up with this sense that as a girl, like, you know, the options that were available to me were, like, competitive sports, because it was, we were the daughters of Title IX, like, you know, of all these girls I grew up with played soccer from the, they were five years old, um, and I realized what a privilege that was, or how historically unique that was. So there was that, and then there was the dance world, and both of the those things to me felt intimidating and exclusive and just like not for me at all. And, you know, as I say, like I played, I like played on one team so I could put on my college application. I was very lackluster lacrosse player, which by the way, I started because it was one of those sports where you could start late because like no one was playing lacrosse and they were four, but you could start in like eighth grade. Anyway, 
felt totally excluded from all of that, felt really alienated in PE class. And basically what happened is that I went to this big public school and I was like sick of being humiliated in gym. And so I read the student rights and responsibilities manual and it said, you can do an independent study in physical education, but it has to be supervised. It cannot be a school sport. And so the the PE head was like, what are you talking about? No one's ever done this. And I'm like, you know, article two, section three, you got to let me do it. Um, And they say, okay, you can go to a group fitness class or you can get a personal trainer. And I asked my parents and they were like, we read an article about personal trainers. That's for rich people. Like you're not doing that. And then um, we belong to a Jewish community center where they had as part of the membership um, aerobics classes or group fitness classes. So because there was no other option, I walked in at age 16 to a step aerobics class and it was totally weird. I remember everyone seemed a hundred years old. Meanwhile, they were like 32 probably. (laughs) Um, And I just set up my little station there and I had to go every week because that was the school requirement for me to go. And very quickly, I like fell completely in love with this world. And I didn't even know what it was. But for the first time in my life, I felt like, oh, this body, which is clumsy and like not, you know, skilled in these other ways that I thought were the only options, I can do this and I feel amazing and it's great. And so that was my first inclination that there was something different between like fitness and sports. And then, you know, I went on, I think for historians, like a pretty predictable trajectory. I was a history major. I like had some other jobs after college, but then I went on to get a PhD. And what was funny is like, I always had this like double life as like kind of a gym rat. And it was sort of funny to my friends because it felt like the antithesis of this like very cerebral path that I was on. But I was like working at the front desk at World Gym to get free classes. And, you know, I I just had this idea. And so I had this passion. And and as you mentioned before, like when I went out to California, I saw like, oh, people run marathons who like are much older than me and are look less fit than me and I could do this. And so I sort of expanded my repertoire and really, yeah, became someone, I don't know if I'm athletic, but I'm definitely somebody for whom fitness is a really big part of her life, um, even with all the kind of problems of the fitness world. So that is definitely like what got me first excited about this project. Well, and, and you're really a great example of a historian who had all the chops of being an academic historian, but because you were so involved with this world, you knew a whole range of other things that you could do research that other people actually couldn't do. I mean, it's almost participant observation. And that's complicated, right? So like, I agree. I've seen it mostly as a boon that I've had connections to like all sorts of people who can give me access to what I think are really unique oral histories and archival collections, some of them in people's basements. At, on the other hand, I tried to be like really, really judicious about what are the limits of my perspective and how is my my participation in the you know the latter part of the history that I'm chronicling how is that coloring my work and what can I do to kind of make sure that it's not I don't have blinders on so yeah that was a really interesting part of this I will say from a big picture perspective something that I do think it brought to the table which I hope is useful to readers is that you know I like everybody stand on the shoulders of the scholars who came before me and there's some really wonderful work on fitness culture I did find that like a lot of the work, particularly on gender and the gym, fell into one of two categories, sometimes both that I don't love, which is that either it was a, had a kind of like clinical detachment that was like, well, this is just this, you know, arm of the patriarchy, which is recapitulating oppressive beauty standards. And it's obviously terrible, Um, you know, and or you're all neoliberal, like automatons for participating in this and like, you know, very sort of patronizing and, and that's it. And I think 
those I'm sympathetic to aspects of that analysis, but I think it's incomplete and a little condescending, more than a little condescending. And then the other um, piece, which what I found very common, and this is often with work coming out of like American studies, I would say more, is that people who are analyzing some of these, let's be honest, sort of like lowbrow pursuits, like weightlifting or jazzercise or whatnot, layer on so much academic language and theory and like, you know, like just so much academic yeast onto it almost to show like, look how serious this is. I'm a really serious person, even if I'm talking about leotards. And I understand that impulse, but I think it's ultimately not that helpful. Like if you want to help people understand and like take seriously the kind of aspects of everyday life, which are not in libraries or in archives or in universities, well, I don't think the answer to that should be to kind of obscure their meaning and significance with academic language. I What I've tried to do in this book is not sacrifice any of the complexity of that kind of argument, but to do so in ways that are clear and accessible and would make somebody who would read Women's Health Magazine pick this up and be like, huh, that's a take I've never thought of. Well, and and listeners who buy your book, and I hope many of them do, are going to see that some of the things they take for granted at the Y or at whatever gym they belong to, like Pilates and yoga and so on, actually have a really long history in the United States. And I wonder if you could talk specifically about Pilates and yoga as practices that really kind of emphasize the spiritual aspects of fitness. Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons or the reason, if I had to pick just one, that like fitness has become the huge juggernaut that it is, is because it has managed to become about more than just bodily transformation. And there are lots of ways that happen, but you're right that Pilates and yoga are two practices or sets of practices that were core to that transformation. So Joseph Pilates, you know, came to the United States in the 1920s and he had devised, first of all, Pilates is a person. A lot of people are like surprised to learn that Pilates was a person, Joseph Pilates. He came to the U.S. He had developed this program in an English POW camp where um, it was during the uh, pandemic, the flu pandemic. And he like with all these pulleys and beds and like hospital equipment, like devised this strength training regimen. And apparently this is not substantiated, but maybe it's true. Apparently the people who trained with him were so kind of strong of body and mind that they did not succumb to the flu as many others did. Debatable whether that's true, but it's one of those stories that took on a life of its own. Anyway, Pilates comes to New York City and sets up on 8th Avenue and very quickly becomes a place where professional dancers and performers are coming to do both rehabilitative and strength work to help them perform. And one of the things that's really interesting about his program, which soon expanded to um, invite people in who like just wanted to look like a dancer, is that he was one of the first people who was talking about connection between mind and body, about controlling the breath, about like cultivating strength from the inside out, about exercise as injury prevention. And so you have that kind of like holistic sensibility, which feels very like 90s or 2000s or even 2022. And he's saying that like in the 1930s in New York City. Uh, yoga, I think, is even more important to the expansiveness of how fitness goes from being this bodily pursuit to being 
this pursuit about self-actualization. And so, you know, yoga had really been in the United States since the 19th century. But for much of that time, like it wasn't even associated primarily with physical movement. A lot of the times you'd go to watch somebody do yoga or to just talk about the philosophy. That begins to change in the 50s and 60s. And you have something which melds physical practice with spiritual teachings be marketed more to an exercise-minded audience. So like there's a book I quote, 1968, Yoga for Slimming. And it like starts out being like, this is not a religious practice. This is not mystical. This is about achieving the goals every woman aspires to, to be like young and graceful and et cetera. And it expands, I should say, in the 70s, like both through this like fitness minded kind of public, but then also as we have the counterculture really take hold, there is a sense that yoga is one of these like experimental embodied practices, which rejects Western medicine, which rejects, you know, um, Western Christianity. And it's like all part of that. The 1990s is when yoga really takes off in the United States. And I think that is like such a key moment in fitness becoming about more than just the body. One thing that happens is that all of these like 80s aerobicizers are getting these terrible injuries. Like, I mean, shin splints, knee problems. Because remember that a lot of them didn't have proper shoes either. Like there were no aerobic shoes to like 83 or something like that, 84, I think. So they need something a little gentler. So like Jane Fonda releases a yoga videotape. in the early 1990s. But a lot of people have written about this. And almost always the emphasis is, well, yoga and fitness fused, and this corrupted the spiritual practice with like this gross thing that was just about thinner thighs. And like, that's the story. The story that I tell actually takes a very different perspective and says, well, let's look at what happened to the gym when yoga came to the gym. This is not just about the corruption of the spiritual practice. This is about the like expansion of a purely physical practice when it co-opted or, you know, was affected by a lot of the language in particular and the modalities of yoga. So what happens is it's crazy in the archival sources. You go, you see these gyms that went from like high impact aerobics to now it's like power yoga, boot camp yoga, like fusion flow, like sweat, like they're really coming together. And what I saw is that All of these, like, first of all, fitness instructors become like gurus. They start, people talk about not just the sweat or the calorie burn, but about enlightenment, about finding transcendence. Like there is just this much more elevated vocabulary that in some ways describe a lot of what people were feeling always, but like didn't have the language to express. But I do think it ends up, it, 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 it succeeds in kind of infusing what was once just bodily with this kind of higher purpose. And so that's a big thing that happens in the 1990s. In a way, it also kind of legitimates it as a kind of intellectual practice and community practice and spiritual practice. But I want to jump on to something you mentioned. You mentioned Jane Fonda, who, of course, is a huge figure in the history of fitness. Let's get ready. Stand with your feet shoulder width apart, toes pointing straight ahead and knees slightly bent right over the toes. Tummies are in, hips tucked under, chest is lifted, shoulders pressed down. Inhale. I wonder if you could talk to our listeners exhale. a little bit 
about the history of celebrity and fitness. Yeah, no, that is such a great question. And so Jane Fonda's unique for like lots of reasons, but in, in this in this realm, she's unique because she became the face of a fitness brand. She really wasn't just the face of it. Like she opened a workout studio. She wouldn't teach all that often, but she was like, her life had been changed through this aerobics practice. She hired this woman, Lenny Kasdan, um, to, for, away from another studio, Gilda Marks, and kind of made um, her the centerpiece of her workout studio. But she, what she ended up doing was really touching off, um, you know, this new chapter in the fitness movement. And so then you're right. What's really interesting is that all of these celebrities, whether they did aerobics or not, they all start releasing their own videos. So you have like the Raquel Welch video, the Heather Locklear video, like everyone and their mother has them. And for the most part, and this thing, this I think is really interesting, they're like acting for most of them. Not that they don't exercise, but this isn't like a core part of who they are. It's like a way to capitalize on their celebrity. It is really for the most part a moment in the 80s before like celebrity trainers who were celebrities in themselves were a big thing. Like there were some people, there was like Richard Simmons who was very popular, but he's also a unique character also in the book. But for the most part, the actual trainers that these folks worked with, including Fonda, who Lenny Kasdan is not a name that most people know, their trainers were behind the scenes. That starts to change in the 80s when celebrity trainers start to become celebrities in their own right. I would even say it's really the early 90s. And you start to have people like Kathy Smith, Denise Austin, like these, a lot of women, by the way, who are frontlining their own shows and becoming celebrities themselves, not just people behind the scenes who are training actresses and models and, and other people like that. Those aren't, by the way, though, that's like looking at the rather modern VHS motivated era. But if you want to look early on, I mean, those early strongmen are fitness celebrities of a sort, like Indra Devi, who Michelle Goldberg wrote this wonderful book about, like one of the very early champions of yoga and exercise. Like, you know, she wrote books and would go on TV. And so there are these fitness influencers and celebrities long before Instagram and even before the VHS era. Jack LaLanne, I mean, you know, there are Debbie Drake. I mean, those are people who are on television and by virtue of having television shows, which were on when there weren't a lot of things to watch, they really introduced regular exercise as part of something that people should be doing like every day. And something that's accessible, that it's coming out of your television. You know, much yep. as today, we um, go on the internet and get a, a yoga practitioner that we really like and just do it in our living room. And that, that was really very geared to the idea that women stayed home and wanted mm -hmm. to be able to do these things at home. I want to shift a little bit, uh, Natalia, and say, you know, you're a historian of education. Your first book was about um, sex education and bilingual education in California. But I think this book is a natural extension of that work. Can you talk about how this book is also really about education? Absolutely. Well, it is all about education because it's about like a process of learning and kind of self-improvement and transformation. And a lot of the people that I'm focusing on here are educators, even if they're at the gym or, you know, training people on YouTube. So that's sort of like the meta context. The other meta context is not even that meta. Classroom Wars, my first book, is a California story that took place in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in California. 
I don't believe in reincarnation, but I kind of believe if I did that I like existed in Southern California in like the 1960s. I just like have that feeling about myself. I hope I didn't just discredit myself with all your smart listeners. But this book takes me right back to that same time period. This is a national history, but it's really an important locus, um, that same environment. And so I kind of was already there. But then I should say in the most concrete terms, this is in many ways a history of the physical education profession and its intersection and kind of different trajectory that it took while the fitness industry boomed and PE as a profession sadly kind of nosedived. And that I did not anticipate that that was going to be such a big focus of this book, but it absolutely is. And I think in very like intellectually honest ways, I mean, one thing that I found, you know, so interesting and kind of surprising is that when I was interviewing folks who kind of made it big in the 1980s, so many of them effectively said, like, yeah, I'm like a great entrepreneur and I like do really, you know, I and sort of gave themselves credit for the uniqueness of their vision. But they say, can you imagine if I'd gone to school 10 years earlier, I would have been a PE teacher. Like there wouldn't have been another path for someone like me. You couldn't have a career making fitness videos and teaching on cruises and all that, like that appetite just wasn't there. And I just found that so interesting. And, you know, there's one woman's story who I, who I follow. I didn't interview her, but she wrote a phenomenal memoir. Her name is Linda Huey. It's called a woman's, uh, it's called a running start. And it's like something about like a woman, an athlete. And she was actually um, around just before title nine passed. And she was born like 10 years before these other folks. And it's really interesting to watch her career because she was a really celebrated athlete who's constantly getting shut out of, um, you know, training and she has to train with men and that has all these like issues for her. And then she goes on to have this career as a PE professor. And she talks about like how frustrated she was with like what that environment was and how much it held back someone like her who was really ambitious and competitive. And like, she just felt so constrained by it. And people like her 10 years later, had a whole different set of opportunities. Yeah. And and I think it also addresses a point that you make periodically throughout the book, that as fitness becomes more popular and wellness becomes more popular, there's a simultaneous distancing from people who are poor um, and people who are then seen as unwell because they're poor and are disdained because they're poor. And and so this this sort of stigma attached to people who are not accessing these things that will make them better. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, as, look, this history that I'm tracing is very much how fitness went from like strange subculture to social imperative. As it is a social imperative, it gets invested with all of this kind of virtue and this kind of self-congratulatory um, discourse of like, oh, well, I am so fit and that is because I am disciplined and I have willpower. And by extension, someone else who, you know, can't doesn't get out of bed to run 10 miles in the morning and doesn't look as cute in their pants like it's because of their failure. They don't want it badly enough. They're not working hard enough, you know, and the kind of like fitness pop culture sphere, it has been for a long time and still is filled with little aphorisms that absolutely like uphold that perspective. And that is um, bullshit, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Like it's true that it takes individual motivation to engage in any kind of exercise program and to follow through successfully. But there are so many structures which kind of 
calibrate and stratify the opportunities that people have to actually do that and to like put their action behind their willpower. And that's a lot of what I try to show. And part of that is about the defunding of PE and the kind of presentation by fitness environments as like, we are socioeconomically exclusive. We are luxurious. And like, you know, people who can't participate in here, well, they don't care about health. Well, when gyms are like the best signifier of gentrification in terms of what neighborhoods they come up in, and the, and that is very very deliberate. That's like part of that kind of um of that kind of story. And one thing I think I wish I had known before this book went into press, um, Kianga Yamada Taylor's notion of predatory inclusiveness, because I think there's such an interesting way that the gym has been a force for greater inclusiveness. I would say women, queer people, um, older people, like absolutely it has brought more people together. But there is also this element of like a cold, hard no to anyone who can't afford to participate or to anyone who wants to come in, but doesn't buy into notions of like, well, I'm here to transform myself, to look younger, to become more fit in a particular way. And so I think it's, there's very much a story here of like, progress and inclusion. And I think that's great. But there's also one particularly along the lines of class of like a kind of hardlined exclusiveness that is pretty, I would say is unchanging or has gotten even worse. Yeah. And, you know, what you just said really explains why something like CrossFit has become such an institution on the libertarian right. So Natalia, I want to end with a question I ask everybody, which is why should our listeners read this book now? Um, it's January almost, right? And so you are being barraged with fitness content um, that is mostly telling you that if you really want it, you can have flat abs. That is not this book, but it will explain why you're being barraged with that. So I think there's a timeliness to that. But of course, like more seriously, I mean, I think that we, whether you work out or not, we are awash in, um, in invitations or in pressures to exercise more. And I think that this book will be really helpful in explaining why things are that way, why it doesn't have to be that way, and certainly why you shouldn't feel bad um, when you hear those kind of invitations. I also think something else that at least two things that I think are really important is like we are rightfully getting more and more attention, paying more attention to inequality in this country and how it has emerged. And especially most related to this, I think the kind of food insecurity conversation is really crucial. There hasn't been really that conversation yet about fitness inequality. I think in some ways, because even though we profess to care so much about exercise, a lot of people still think it's like a silly leisure pastime, not like a social good or something people should have access to. I think that's the wrong impression. And I think that we um, are at our peril, ignore how fitness too is an issue um, of social justice and, and inequality. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. 
You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.